Would you remain standing as we recite the Shema together and hear the scripture from the New Testament book of Romans? Let's recite the Shema. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. From the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 31, Paul wrote this to the Christians in Rome. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A few years back, I officiated at a funeral for a family that was from out of town, And the service was here in our garden chapel. Beforehand, I gathered the family together and we talked about how the son would provide a eulogy for his mother. And I gave him my standard advice, which is write it out and keep it brief. On the day of the service, when he got to the microphone with his notes, he was overcome with emotion And he managed to say just two words before he sat back down. He said, thank you. At that time, I got this feeling, tight feeling in the pit of my stomach that I get when things don't go the way that I want them to go. But I was quickly redirected by the thought, what more could he have said? Thank you is the most appropriate of expressions in this circumstance. He was saying thank you to friends and family that gathered to grieve with him. He was saying thank you to his mother for all that she had been. And he was saying thank you to God, our creator, provider, sustainer. Thank you is important. It is so important that theologian Christine Pohl says that gratitude is one of four practices that sustains a Christian community. The sermon series that we started last week and we continue this week is about community. 
And we will talk during the sermon, sermon series about things that draw us together, practices that draw us together in relationship and keep us going. And gratitude is one of those practices. And yet I struggle. I struggle with the simple expression of thank you. This was brought home to me this week when I received a voicemail from Keith that started with these two words. You're welcome. (laughs) Whoops, I thought. (laughs) I've overlooked something that he gave me or something that he did for me yet again. I could tell by the tone of his voice I forgot to say thanks. I love Anne Lamont's definition of a good marriage. She says it's one where each spouse secretly thinks that he or she got the better deal. (laughs) So much so that we are then flush with appreciation. The same can be said about friendships and Christian community. Lamont goes on to write, What a great scam! To have gotten people of such extreme quality and to be stuck with them. You see, I got the better end of the deal in my marriage and I got the better end of the deal in my church. So why is it so hard for me to remember and to express gratitude? Well, I think I can answer that question for you. And here's why I believe I can answer that question for you. I'm a half empty kind of girl. So I can speak to the struggle with gratitude. I can tell you what I see. Now, if you are a half full kind of person, which many of you are, you can tune these next few minutes out. But sometimes to me, sometimes to me, it seems like other people have it better than I do. Other people get their way more than I do. Other people had a better vacation than I did. Other people have a better behaved dog. You all have a better behaved dog than I do. (laughs) Other people have a more gifted child than I do, and the list can go on and on. There's a book that's titled Grace Matters, and this book makes the argument that very close connection to people leads to the tendency to compare ourselves with one another. This Close connection with people where we compare ourselves to one another is the birthplace of envy. And Soren Kierkegaard referred to envy as the small town sin. Because we usually are envious of people who are like us. We are envious of people who are like us in age, class, occupation, and gender. Now, I don't know about you, but I spend most of my time around people who are like me, who are are like me in age and class and occupation, not only in this small town, but also on social media, where people that appear to look just like me in age and gender and occupation post flawless and ideal images of their experiences and their families. It's hard for me to be grateful when everyone else gets more. Jesus told a parable. He told a parable about envy. It was about workers in a vineyard 
where a gracious employer asks the disgruntled laborers, Are you envious because I am generous? Well, it's hard for me to be grateful. It's hard for me to be grateful when it seems like other churches get more or other churches are doing better than we are. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think about the perfect church. And I think if we could just do, or if we could just be, I'll let you fill in the blank. A few years ago, I traveled with New Zion Choir to Nashville. And when we were in Nashville, we worked in a beautiful community garden that was located in these rolling green hills right outside of the city. And while we were working in the garden, I noticed that there was this very picturesque, probably century-old barn on the property that was utilized by the people who volunteered in the garden. And the people who volunteered in the garden, there were many of them. It wasn't just the New Zion Choir. They were All of these volunteers were harvesting very wholesome, organic food for people who were hungry in the community. And then I wandered around the property, and at the base of the hill, I discovered that was a future site for a Methodist church. A Methodist church was moving to that property, and just a stone's throw away from the place where the sanctuary would sit was a river. There was a river right there on the property. Can you just imagine? Can you imagine if we were worshiping this morning in a sanctuary and we could look out the windows and on one side we would see a garden and on the other side we would hear a babbling brook. But Christine Pohl, who is a professor at Asbury Seminary, says that this is an exercise in what she calls spiritual pornography. It is creating a mental fantasy of a perfect place, creating a mental fantasy of a perfect people. And it leads us not to recognize the very good things that are present right now in our midst among us. We develop an incapacity to appreciate small gifts and we trample on very fragile expressions of goodness that occur between us. I'm afraid that I've been both the victim and the perpetrator here. Well, sometimes sometimes it's not that I'm just imagining what is perfect. Sometimes it is that I see the problems. I see what's missing. I see what's off. You can ask my children. They'll tell you it's a superpower that I have. And it's probably one that they would not choose for me. I have a friend that was describing her sister-in-law who has the same superpower, the ability to see what's off. And she said that this woman's children, when she's out of the room, will flatten a pillow. Or they will make a picture on the wall just a little bit crooked to see what she does when she comes back in the room. And she almost always makes the immediate adjustments. (laughs) And her now adult children all laugh. The ability to see what's missing, the ability to see what's off or wrong, the dark side of that gift, the dark side of that gift is criticism. 
and the Bible calls the bent towards criticism grumbling. Many theologians have described grumbling as a very slippery slope. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a character, a woman, whose unrelenting grumbling has made it hard to distinguish whether or not she's a grumbler or just a grumble. There may not be a woman left there at all, he writes. He goes on to say, The whole difficulty of hell is that it begins with a grumbling mood, and you yourself are distinct from it. Then, in a dark hour, you embrace it. Now, you can repent and come out of it again, but there will come a day when you can no longer do that. There will be no you left, just a grumble, just a grumble going on forever like a machine. A wise friend advised me that new ideas cannot exist in the same space as pervasive criticism. So criticism has the ability to shut down a way forward. It has the ability to shut down a way forward for a church, for a family, for a child that we are parenting or teaching. Believe me, criticism has the power to paralyze. The grumbler, I believe, needs an accountability partner or an accountability team that can say to them, yes, that's true, or no, that's not true, and if it is true, what are we going to do about it together? Now, criticism is not the same as saying what is true for you in in painful circumstances. It's not the same as speaking your truth about what is frustrating or what is painful. Frustration and pain are present among us and also very true in any given moment. Paul doesn't shy away from the difficulties in life when he addresses the Christians in Rome. He admits the existence of hardship, and then he lists all the hardships, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. He quotes Psalm 44, For your sake we face death all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44 is a plea. It is a plea, a crying out to God to act. So I think in Paul's mind, in Paul's mind, God has answered this plea. And he wants the Christians in Rome to see that God has answered this plea in Jesus. So what will the people in Rome do about the hostile conditions that they are currently experiencing and will continue to experience in even more dramatic ways very soon when Nero comes to power? The answer for Paul is about remembering. It's about remembering what is true, remembering the pure love that was evidenced in the good news of Jesus the Christ. When we celebrate, when we celebrate the Eucharist, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is literally a giving thanks. That's what the word 
Eucharist means. It comes from the Greek word that means thanksgiving. And it is, it is wonderfully incomprehensible for me to think that on the night of his betrayal, Jesus would grace his followers, even those who would betray him, with gratitude, with thanksgiving. He would take the bread and he would give thanks. He would take the cup and he would give thanks. I also believe that in Paul's mind, God's answer to this present suffering is communal. It's about the relationships that they have with one another. Because when he writes to them, he uses the word us. The answer is an us or a we. He does not write, nothing will separate you or nothing will separate me from the love of God. But instead he writes, nothing will separate us. And so together, together we will make certain that there is a way forward because of the grace that we testify to in Jesus. For many centuries, people have observed that Christians die well. We said about my own grandmother, who was in her 90s when she was given just a few weeks to live, and who all of my life was a church-going, praying, faithful woman, We said about her that she showed us how to die. Because in those two weeks, she had the faith and the capacity to put everything in order in her home. She had the capacity to say, I'm ready. And she had the ability to call her friends and her family to come and be with her and sit with her. It was like we were spiritual midwives bringing on the new life. Through death. It is our own confidence in eternal life and the very presence of others who share in that same confidence that allows us to say with Paul, not even death, not even death will separate us from the love of God. Now, I suppose that it's possible. I suppose that it's possible to practice gratitude and isolation off all by myself. But I think that's very difficult because it is community and its relationships that make gratitude so much more accessible. This topic of gratitude has forced me to find a practice of gratitude because I have begun to see that gratitude is a muscle. It's a muscle in my own life that can be strengthened or it's a space in my life That is very small, but it can grow. It can grow. And and that will be good for me. And that will be good for my family. And that will be good for you. There was a study by Robert Emmons, who is out of UC Berkeley, who said this about grateful people. The study said that grateful people are more empathetic, that they're more generous, that they have fewer health problems that they have a greater life satisfaction, and they have lower levels of stress and depression. So I'm trying to find a practice of gratitude, and I think there are a few ways to do that. One way to do that would be just very simply to make it a habit to thank people. There is one person on staff at this church who is writing a thank you note or two every week. Maybe you've gotten a thank you note from that person. 
that is a practice of gratitude. You might keep a list beside your bed where you can write down three, four, five things every day that you're grateful for. What I am doing is I am trying every day to find one thing that I'm grateful for, and then I'm trying to wrap my mind around that for several minutes and not letting my mind wander into what needs to be done or what is wrong or what is worrisome, but keeping my mind almost meditating on what I'm grateful for. In her chapter that's titled Thanks, Anne Lamont says that thanks is a mind shift. It is a shifting of the mind from thinking that God is deeply interested in my opinions of the people and the situations that I hate (laughs) to feeling a quiet gratitude, humbly and amazingly, without shame at having been so blessed. In your bulletins, you will find a tag that looks like this, or if it fell out, you can find a tag like this in the, on the carpet somewhere around you, on the floor somewhere around you. But on the tag is a question that hopefully will trigger you to write down one thing that you're grateful for. I want us to engage in a practice of gratitude as we worship. It can be a person. It could be an experience. It could even be a thing. But something that you want to focus on today, something that you want to carry around with you that will strengthen that muscle of gratitude and lead us to joy, would you write that down? And during the last hymn, which you can find the words and the music for the last hymn in your bulletin, During that last hymn, would you bring it to one of the baskets that are in the center? There are two baskets in the center aisle here of the sanctuary. In your bulletins is also a prayer. Would you join me in this closing prayer? O great provider, you who have given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart, not thankful when it pleases me, as if your blessings had spare days, but such a heart whose pulse may be your praise. Amen.